All right, here we are back again in Acts chapter 4. Here in Acts chapter 4, while telling the story of the arrest of Peter and John for preaching about Jesus in the temple, this story contains words of the apostles that are some of the most significant in the entire New Testament. There are two world-changing sort of statements here, just one's theological, one's practical, but just in terms of what Christianity is and how we conduct ourselves and uh, what truth we trust in, two foundational texts in chapter four. So one statement is a very clear text on Jesus as the only savior. It's the, it's the really a text that measures one's orthodoxy, whether you accept what Peter has to say in this particular passage. And it also explains why Christians are so eager to share Jesus with other people. The other one is a key text on the relationship between the believer and the civic authorities which is kind of in the news a lot lately these days and a lot of Christians feel sort of uh, like our governments in significant ways sort of moving against us or putting restrictions on on us in a lot of different ways. And so that'll be really important. We'll look at that one next week. So but both texts are critically important passages and they deserve a full treatment. So I'm sort of challenged as a Bible teacher uh, to work on the narrative portion. This is a story and uh, to really develop that but also to give proper weight to these two critical passages. So we will do both as best I can this week and next week in Acts chapter 4. So follow along as we look at chapter 4. Chapter 3 is to set up. If you weren't here for that let me kind of recap for you. Um, There was a marvelous and very public miracle that took place at the hands of the apostles. So a very well-known cripple who was 40 years old, a beggar of alms who had never walked. He was born crippled from birth. He was instantly and completely healed by Peter using the name of Jesus Christ. He was just raised up and um, Luke takes a lot of care to describe this man's condition. And I want you to think about why he might do that too. Because I think some modern people think ancient people were more gullible than modern people. That they were, could be tricked into believe, oh that's a miracle uh, really easily. But that's not true. Um, they were just as skeptical of things that never happened in the ordinary world as well. So Luke is really careful to describe that this man was well known. He was 40 years old. So he'd been a cripple for 40 years. He'd never used his legs for 40 years and that he had this condition from birth. That, that adds to the miraculous nature of this because it wasn't like he'd been down for a couple years or he had a bad back or something like that. It's uh, he had never walked and suddenly he's springing up, leaping and praising God and uh, it's truly a fantastic thing. And people all knew him. Anybody that went through that particular gate going into the temple had seen him there begging alms for decades and decades. So uh, it's a huge, huge event. So crowds are attracted immediately to that because he's so boisterous in his praise of the Lord and they're drawn and then they're drawn to the Peter and John and then Peter preaches this fantastic sermon emphasizing the resurrection of Christ and the need to repent for disowning him and executing him and he preaches on their need to turn to God for forgiveness and he tells them that if they accept Jesus God will send him and will send times of refreshing which I think is a flat out offering of the kingdom. If the Jewish people as a people had accepted Christ that he would have established the kingdom right then and there. And he emphasizes that these children of, are, of Israel are extra blessed because Christ is brought to them first. That's another part of the Acts 3 sermon. They have a special place in God's heart. 
They are covenant people. Jesus is actually one of them. So they have the first opportunity to be blessed by him as the word goes out and the promise to Abraham is fulfilled that in your seed all the families of the earth will be blessed and indeed the gospel is going to go to the whole world and bless every people group but it's going to them first. So that's just another emphasis there. Um, Verse 26 he says in chapter 3 he says for you first God raised up his servant and sent him to bless you by turning every one of you from your wicked ways. So there's their opportunity. Then while Peter's talking the temple officials arrive. So somebody had been listening and ran to report to them while Peter was still talking and uh, to tell the authorities and they come. So word got back to the priests and the captain of the guard, the captain of the temple guard. So verse 1 of chapter 4 it says, as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to them being greatly disturbed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. Now Luke's language is really interesting here. He's telling us something that's important. The the original cause for them coming out doesn't seem to be the miracle. And it's not even the call to repent. But but it's the resurrection specifically. Uh, Why the resurrection? Well if you look at who's coming and who's in charge in the temple Uh, it fits perfectly with what we know about the first century religious scene. The Sadducees are a part of this group. They're sort of the main part of this group and they're making a rare appearance. So much about the Pharisees in the Bible but the Sadducees show up now and then. The Sadducees were at the power center of Israel's religious life because they were the ones that really ran the temple. Um, They were the religious aristocrats, the, uh, the elite and very unlike the Pharisees. They um, never felt bound by rabbinical arguments or rabbinical teaching. They didn't consider the whole Old Testament to be authoritative scripture. They really only believed in the five books of Moses. In a sense they were like modern rationalists or what we might call liberal or progressive Christians. They, they didn't think in terms of the supernatural really at all. Um, they denied the existence of angels we're told by ancient sources. They rejected the afterlife. There's no life beyond this life. That's why in the Gospels we find them trying out one of their best arguments against the resurrection or the idea of a resurrection with Jesus. They come to him on the day of questions and they're trying to trip him up and he makes mincemeat out of them. I don't know if you remember that story but they were um, really against the idea of of a life beyond this life and that seems to be what caught their attention. They were also politically powerful. Um, They cooperated with Rome and they controlled the religious scene in Jerusalem. They were the authorities in Jerusalem. So Luke also mentions here the police chief, the captain of the temple guard, and really he was the man second to the high priest in temple affairs. He oversaw a hand-picked guard out of the Levites. They were kind of an elite corps and they uh, maintained order in the temple and handled any problems that came up. So why did Peter, what did Peter say that caused them distress? Why are they upset with Peter or concerned enough to come running out while he was speaking? Because he had said Jesus was risen. And so that contradicted their whole theological position, the way they viewed everything. Uh, and the way Luke words it in verse 2, it isn't so much Jesus' resurrection, it doesn't sound like, as it is the idea of a resurrection. That's sort of what caught their attention. That's what they heard. So somebody ran to them and said somebody's preaching the resurrection and so they're coming out to kind of put the kibosh on that. 
so Peter is preaching this awesome sermon about Jesus. Now they didn't all hear all of this sermon. They're just coming in at the end of it. So he talked about how Jesus was the prophet that Moses spoke about. He was the Christ. He was God's servant. He's the holy and righteous one. And they had killed him. And Peter said God raised him from the dead. And he said we are witnesses of that. So all of that's in play right now. So the crowd responded properly and by God's grace their hearts were broken they were guilty and many put their faith in Christ we see that in verse 4 it says many of those who heard the message believed and the number of men came to about 5,000 that's a lot of people so on Pentecost in chapter 2 3,000 people here it's 5,000 men so men could be heads of household that could represent a lot of people that are now part of the church there so and I just want to make something clear about that too what he says there in verse 4 um, notice he says those who heard the message believed and they were added to the to the congregation there so this large number responds with what faith not their leaders but they do and if you remember we talked about repentance and turning being equivalent to faith when we were talked about the sermon in the previous chapter and here Luke is actually saying that. So Peter's preaching return and return to God and repent and Luke describes that as believing. So those are the same thing. When you turn from your sins to God and, and give yourself to him that is believing. And so Luke actually sees it that way. Just another little thing I wanted to point out theologically there. Okay so a large number in the crowd respond with faith. The leaders are not responding with faith they are greatly disturbed he says because of this resurrection idea and again they didn't hear the sermon but they heard that it proclaimed the resurrection even claimed to witness a resurrection but there is no resurrection to them so Peter couldn't have seen it right so he's doing something wrong so they arrest Peter and John and throw them in the uh, huskau as they might say actually they wouldn't say that if they were Germans they might Verse 3, they laid hands on them and put them in jail until the next day for it was already evening. So their trial before the great council, the Sanhedrin, is the next day in verse 5. So on the next day their rulers and elders and scribes were gathered together in Jerusalem and Anas, the high priest, was there and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who were of priestly descent. So the whole sort of priestly family was there. You remember Anas was the um, former high priest and Caiaphas was the current high priest and also his son-in-law so we don't know who John and Alexander are but um, they're probably part of that family but um, these are all key players uh, they were key players in the illegal trial of Jesus not that long before this so apparently the council meets in some kind of a circle or semicircle because it's described as those being investigated or put at the center so it's like a uh, room like this and then at the center the, the uh, accused are put there and they are Peter and John are asked a really great question not about the resurrection see it's a day later so that was what got their attention going but now the whole story of the miracle has been told all over the place and this man that's walking and apparently he's there as well and so now they're probing what's really going on so they're asking some good questions so in verse 7 when they had placed them in the center they began to inquire by what power or in what name have you done this? So now it's a doing. So it's the miracle that's got their attention right now because everybody's talking about that. So you can kind of picture these two Galilean fishermen not well educated standing before 
the most powerful and learned body in their nation. Um, that's pretty intimidating. So the question that's asked is really direct and it's very clear and very specific. And its intent is probably to put Peter and John under the condemnation of Deuteronomy which forbids you from leading the people astray to other gods or other kind of um, authorities like that. So Peter who had denied Jesus in his trials in his trials uh, right now he's as bold as can be. He is bold as a lion. So what changed? Well two things changed. Once Jesus rose from the dead that's one thing and, Je- and Peter had spent uh, 40 days with Jesus over the course of several weeks there and um, that emboldened him. But the other thing of course is in Acts chapter 2 the coming of the Holy Spirit. So Luke specifically mentions here that Jesus is full of the Spirit and that's why the Spirit came to empower us to give us courage to um, focus us. So that's why verse 8 begins then Peter filled with the Holy Spirit said to them. So the Spirit is the source of Peter's courage and his clarity as he addresses his very learned and powerful politically powerful and religiously powerful judges in this case. So fear doesn't rule him anymore. In fact Peter sees the question they ask him just like he saw the crowds eager interest in the miracle that had occurred the day before he sees their interest in whose name he's acting in as opportunity. This is another opportunity he's got so he's going to launch right into the gospel. This is not only an opportunity to convert people to Jesus it's an opportunity to convert the nation's leaders to bring them to Christ. That's what he's shooting for here. You know I kind of wonder if during the night when Peter and John were in jail waiting for this trial the next day if they had discussed Jesus words in Matthew chapter 10 verse 17 if they'd talked about that because there Jesus said be beware of men for they will hand you over to courts and scourge you in the synagogues. You will even be brought before governors and kings for my sake as a testimony to them and to the Gentiles. But when they hand you over do not worry about what you are to say for it will be given you in that hour what you are to say. For it is not you who speak but it is the spirit of your father who speaks in you. Just remembering those words would have bolstered again their courage and now that the spirit had come and Peter full of the spirit is up and he's ready. He doesn't have to plan a big message. He's ready. He's just going to testify to the truth right to them. So Peter speaks um, in a manner not very different from the first two sermons Acts 2 and Acts 3 but here he's before the highest court in the land. So remember that. Verse 8. Rulers and elders of the people. If we are on trial today for the benefit done to a sick man as to how this man has been made well let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene whom you crucified whom God raised from the dead by this name this man stands before you in good health. Wow. So he answered their question. Maybe he gave them a little more than they were anticipating. He fully credits Jesus for the healing miracle verse 9 and 10. He places the responsibility for Jesus' murder squarely on them whom, um, whom you crucified, verse 10. And he bears witness that Jesus rose from the dead, whom God raised from the dead, also in verse 10. All of that's right there. So he's really letting him have it. Then he returns to answer their by whose authority are you doing this question. He says by this name Jesus the Nazarene this man stands before you in good health. So when he says this man it it sounds like this is usually a 
meaning somebody right there. So that man is probably present. We don't have any record, record of him speaking, but they probably interviewed him as well and asked him what went on and all of this. So Peter gives them the gospel uh, simply and plainly starting with an Old Testament reference. So after saying all these key facts, he launches in in verse 11. He, talking about Jesus, is the stone which was rejected by you, the builders, but which became the chief cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. That is as clear a statement as he could give them. Uh, Now the idea of the rejected stone uh, become the chief cornerstone, it's straight out of Psalm 118 verse 22. It was a psalm that Jesus used in a very memorable way. In fact Jesus used it, Jesus used it in the temple talking to the very same people um, that Peter and John are standing in front of. I don't know if you remember that but if you uh, look back at verse 5, who, who is examining Peter and John? Their rulers and elders and scribes were gathered together in Jerusalem and Anas the high priest was there and Caiaphas. So the rulers, the elders, the scribes and the chief priests. Now if you turn back in your Bible to Luke chapter 20 for a little bit. Luke chapter 20. Luke 20 uh, is the Passion Week. Jesus last week before the crucifixion. And he's in the temple and he's teaching and who, who, look who comes to talk to him in verse 1. On one of the days while he was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders confronted him. Oh my, it's the same people. Chief priests, scribes and elders. What do they want from Jesus? Verse 2. They spoke saying to him, tell us by what authority you are doing these things. A very similar question. And who is the one who gave you this authority? And that's when Jesus turns it around and he says, well, I'll answer your question if you answer me a question. Tell me, was John the Baptist sent from God or not? Was he from heaven or from men? And they can't answer. And they have a a little conference in verse 5. They reasoned among themselves saying if we say from heaven he will say why did you not believe him? But if we say from men then all the people will stone us to death for they are convinced that John was a prophet. It's very political you know. Well how's this going to affect me based on the answer right? Verse 7 so they answered that they did not know where he came from. Where his authority came from and Jesus said to them neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Then Jesus starts, he doesn't stop there, he talks, he gives them a parable and the parable is about men who rent a vineyard from a wealthy man and and don't give him the share that he's owed, it's his vineyard. So they rent it, they're making, they're making grapes and wine and all that stuff, they're selling everything and they're making money but they're not giving him his due because they're renting this property. And he sends them slaves to collect the rent and what do they do? They beat his slaves. They even kill his slaves. So he sends his own son and they kill him too. That's verse 14 there. Verse 14, when the vine growers saw him, the son, they reasoned with one another saying, this is the heir. Let us kill him so the inheritance will be ours. So they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then, Jesus says, will the owner of the vineyard do to them? 
he will come and destroy these vine growers and will give the vineyard to others. Now the priests and the rulers recoil at that thought knowing that Jesus is talking about God as the owner of the vineyard. That's an Old Testament idea. And they cry out in verse 16, may it never be. Verse 17, but Jesus looked at them and said, what then is this that is written? The stone which the builders rejected, this became the chief cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. But on whomever it falls, it will scatter him like dust. Verse 19, the scribes and the chief priests tried to lay hands on him that very hour. And they feared the people for they understood that he spoke this parable against them. That incident with Jesus could not have been more than a few months at most before Peter and John stood before these same priests and scribes and elders. And Peter would have remembered the day Jesus spoke with the chief priests and the answer he gave quoting from Psalm 118 verse 22. So back in Acts chapter 4 Peter is making exactly the same reference they would have totally understood. They understood Jesus when he made that reference and now they're going to understand here. So Peter says in Acts 4:11, he is the stone which was rejected by you the builders but which became the chief cornerstone. And then he takes the application of that of Christ as the foundation of a new work of God and he draw, drives this home in verse 12. There is salvation in no one else because he's the chief cornerstone. For there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. Jesus is the only salvation that there is. He's telling that to the chief priests, the scribes, the elders. They're all there. All the leaders of Israel are there. And he's telling them right to their face that Jesus is the only way of salvation. So that is the first of the two essential texts I mentioned when I started this morning that are found in Acts chapter 4. So I'm going to stop the narrative there and we'll continue the narrative next week. But I want to try to shed some more light on verse 12 as it relates to our times because as I said it's a, it's a theologically essential text. Uh, verse 12 is really important because it's so clear and if I can use this word it's so exclusionary. It excludes people. It's important for that reason. There is salvation in no one else for there's no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. Those words are as significant and they teach the same thing as Jesus when he told his disciples at the last supper. John 14 6. Um, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the father but through me. Those were his words. They were said privately. Peter is giving publicly now to the leaders of Israel the same idea that only in Jesus is there salvation. Salvation is found only in Christ. Reconciliation with the Father, our creator, the only God. Reconciliation with him is through Jesus alone. If you're a Christian, you're obligated to believe that. Jesus doesn't leave any wiggle room when he told that to the disciples. And Peter doesn't leave any wiggle room when he's talking to the chief priests and the rulers of Israel. But people try to wiggle around Jesus all the time. And Peter doesn't let us do that. Um, no one comes to the Father but through me. 
Now that's perfectly clear, um, but we live in a day when no truth is to be regarded as the truth. I mean that's kind of where our culture is. People actually use the phrase, you hear it all the time, my truth. As though truth is not objective, it depends on what you want it to be. Um, That's a scary thing in itself. In the name of inclusion and niceness, people want Jesus and other saviors to be true. Just depending on what you believe in or what you trust in or what, what they might call other paths. Have you ever heard people say there are many paths to God and Jesus is one path? Uh, they want a Christianity that's not exclusive because our culture hates exclusivity. Exclusion is bad, we're told. So people can use their imagination that claim to be sort of Christian in some way. They can go, hmm, nobody comes to the Father but through me. Now what can that really mean? Sure sounds like Jesus is the only way, but it can't mean that because that's bad. Exclusion is bad. So what does it really mean? And maybe it means Jesus is the way, but he goes by other names. I've heard that a number of times from people. Maybe when I pray to Buddha, I'm really praying to Jesus. Or if I pray to Allah, Jesus hears my prayers and he accepts me through that prayer to Allah. Or if I pray to Baal, well, well maybe not Baal. They don't usually say that because um, th- there are some exclusions you have to have. But if I don't believe anything, ev- even if I don't believe in anything but this material world, if I'm a total naturalist, materialist, this is all there is, there's no spiritual realm at all. But if I give to charity and I'm a nice person, maybe Jesus accepts my gifts as though I was worshiping him. The current Pope actually suggests that that's sort of true, that that could well be true, that other religions are a way to Jesus, through Jesus to the Father, and just being a nice atheist might be enough of going through Jesus to the Father. Now that's kind of an understandable conclusion if you don't really have a Christian view of the world based on the Bible at all. If you reject everything else the Bible says that sounds kind of reasonable. If you don't believe that sin is serious, if you don't believe that humans are in rebellion against the true God, if you don't believe idols are not a reflection of faith but are actually wickedness when you worship idols, if you don't believe God is holy if you don't believe God is righteous and hates evil, if you don't believe that, if you don't believe man is guilty of sin and it's his sin is worthy of death, if you don't believe that, then yeah, it sounds like maybe Jesus is one of many paths to God. You know, that's kind of, if you don't believe the most essential things that the Bible teaches, then it appears kind of like a beautiful thought that maybe praying to Buddha is acceptable to God and maybe he's just another name for Jesus because God, you know, God has nothing really against us anyway. Um, It's just a wretched and cruel and unjust world and it really isn't our fault and uh, certainly not my fault, right? Right? I haven't stolen anything in years. I've, uh, when I tell lies, they've been out of necessity, not out of any sort of cruelty or anything, at least most of the time. And I've acted selfishly sometimes, but who hasn't really? I mean, think about it. The Sermon on the Mount, it, pretty well describes me when I read it and I certainly don't judge others differently than I judge myself. I don't do that. Jesus, um, hmm, you know when he says love your enemies, I, I know I, I do that. I never have hatred in my heart for anyone. Hatred is foreign to me. I'm, I'm a better person than that and if there's a God or some sort of reckoning at the end of this life then I'll be just fine. Some people believe that. 
If you're a morally superior person, go ahead and try to claim that on the big day. I'm not going to do that because I know my sin and my heart matches what the Bible says about it. That it is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. That I have a wicked heart at the core. Um, that that is what's wrong with humanity according to the Bible. We have sinful dark hearts that need to be renewed and changed by God's grace. So all of the things that are wrong with the world they're in me. They're part of me. In fact the Bible is the only book I know that actually explains where this evil in me comes from. That's one of the big reasons I became a Christian. This book explains me to myself. And I mean it's the only book that does that. So I am very well aware that I am unworthy of heaven and that my heart is so spiritually dark that I needed a heart transplant. You know people call Jesus a crutch. I don't need a crutch. I need a heart surgeon. I need somebody to give me a new heart. That's what I needed and that's what he gave me. And you know honestly I'm not really sure I understand why exclusion is a horror to people. I really don't get that. I mean some exclusion is good isn't it? I mean pedophiles should be excluded from playgrounds. We all agree about that everyone? Do we all agree about that? No pedophiles on the playground. Or the Cub Scouts. I, they should be excluded from that. Loud drunkards should be excluded from concerts that have string quartets for example. They, they should be excluded from that. Normal rational people are in favor of some exclusions. So I'm not sure why people who say exclusion is bad say that because they don't really believe that. They like their own exclusions. In fact we're living in one of the most intolerant times that in my lifetime, I mean when I was growing up everything was supposed to be accept everyone. Now that we got this cancel culture thing people are getting canceled all over the place. J.K. Rowling, the Harry Potter lady, she did this horrible thing. She's about as liberal as you can get as a political person but she said biological men cannot become women. Canceled. She's an evil person, corrupt, evil, monstrous. She's got to be taken out. That, that, what she said, that's a 21st century heresy worthy of shunning and exclusion and social excommunication. So I think if God is infinitely good and if we are rather stubbornly bad, exclusion from heaven seems like the best choice he could make on his part to me. How could a good God allow us to take heaven, to take to heaven what we've done to this earth? Why would he do that? Shouldn't there be some place where creatures like us are, are not allowed? Some kind of restriction on us? Put us somewhere? Should God want heaven populated with people who are indifferent to him? who can take him or leave him? Do we really, really want people in heaven who don't love God? That just do whatever they want? That have no deep interest in him or honoring him? Maybe we should think about that when we get upset about God being exclusive. Well let me step back to this idea of Jesus saying no one comes to the Father but through me. Um, that that might allow for some people to uh, go 
another way, praying to a God that has a different name, but it's really pray, being prayed to Jesus. Because that's where Acts, that's where Acts 4.12 is so useful for us. It, it forbids you to think that way. So even if you're trying to twist what Jesus said in John 14.6, no one comes to the Father but through me. Acts 4.12 says, again, there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. Talking about salvation, right? Deliverance from sin, deliverance from eternal condemnation, and Peter says there is such a deliverance in no one else. And under heaven's skies, in this whole earth that we live in, there is no other name by which we must be saved. So Jesus doesn't have other names that represent different gods or religions or powers in the spiritual realm. Now Jesus has, people pronounce Jesus' name differently. The Greek word for Jesus' name is Jesus and Jews call him Yeshua and Spanish people call him Jesus and we call him Jesus but that's the same name. Talking about the same person. Only he is the creator God who made all things and became flesh. Only he. Only Jesus went to the cross to make satisfaction for sin. Zeus did not do that. Buddha did not do that. Shiva did not do that. Allah certainly did that. In fact the Quran says that Jesus didn't do it either. And that Jesus is not God's son. That's what Allah says. So how could Jesus accept prayers to a God who denies him as if they were to him. They couldn't accept prayers to, to Allah can't accept prayers to, through Christ who den, denying that Christ is, is God in any way. How would that make sense? So there's no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. That's what the Bible says. That is a claim. It's either true or it's not true. You are free to reject it but you should know what it means to reject him. You are betting that it's not true when you arrive on that day. And if you're like the silly man I was being a little while ago, you're, and you think you're a keeper of God's commandments and you're really in good shape when you get there because you live the Sermon on the Mount, I suggest you read it again. Matthew chapter five through seven, the Sermon on the Mount. See how you really measure up to that standard. That's God's standard for how we should be. The most curious thing people sometimes say when you share Jesus with them is they say so I suppose you're right and everybody else is wrong. Are you really that arrogant? I've been told that to my face. Actually it has absolutely nothing to do with me. Nothing. So no I'm not that arrogant. It has nothing to do with me. I'm not claiming to be the savior of the world. It is not arrogant to share with someone where salvation can be found. That's just sharing valuable information. You know recently a bunch of tourists were on a little island somewhere and the volcano started to go off and a bunch of people were killed and a lot of them were burned badly and one group got away just in time. If we were on an island together, on a tourist spot looking at some crater or something and then it started to explode and we all ran to the beach and I was the only one that knew where a boat was moored around the corner somewhere. If I shared that with you, would you say, how arrogant are you to tell us where the boat is. I mean th- that's the only way off the island. How, who are you to share some information with me like that? I don't think anybody would say that. I think they'd say are you sure? Yes I saw it there. I know that's where they planned to moor it. Let's get over there. We all ran over there and we all got saved right? 
but if you want to stubbornly say I'm arrogant because I have knowledge of salvation, that's just silly. And you're going to perish in those horrible gases in the volcano. That's true spiritually as well. Jesus is the only savior that God has provided. That's just the truth. That's what the Bible says. Only he was sinless. Only he is the spotless lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus is not another wise man. He is God incarnate. God is personally coming to rescue us in the person of Jesus Christ. He's coming to rescue us from his own wrath, just wrath against sin. So God cannot dismiss sin because God is holy. It has to be atoned for and Jesus is the atoning sacrifice. The only one worthy to be the atoning sacrifice for us. He is the only rescue that any human being will ever be offered. Period. That's the lesson of Acts 4.12. Let's pray. Our great God you are so gracious to send us a savior that we did not deserve. A savior that brings new life. That brings us a new heart. That died in our place bearing the punishment that we did actually deserve for our real sins. We thank you for that. It is a privilege and a joy to share that salvation with other people. There's nothing arrogant about it because we are completely unworthy of that salvation. We're just beggars showing other beggars where bread is. And we thank you so much for the gift you've given us. May we rejoice in it and may our lives be a light to those that need it. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Okay, next time we'll talk about the other really significant verse in Acts chapter four and we'll tell the rest of the story. See you then.